From Impact Alpha, this is a special episode of Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Impact Alpha editor David Bank recently caught up with Ross Baird, the CEO of Village Capital, a venture capital firm backing entrepreneurs outside the usual VC hotspots of Silicon Valley, Boston, and New York. Ross has a new book out, The Innovation Blind Spot, which tackles not only what venture capitalists invest in, but how they make those investments. Here's the conversation. Hi, this is David Bank. I'm here with Ross Baer, the president of Village Capital, coming to us from his home in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ross. Hi, David. It's great to be here. Ross, you started uh, Village Capital uh, eight or nine years ago, 2009, and it's become one of the standout talent spotters and trend spotters and investors uh, all around the country. You've got a new book coming out called The Innovation Blind Spot, and we're delighted to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. I think as you were uh, birthing this book, uh, your your family was birthing a, another project. That's right. Uh, we had a uh, baby uh, on July 4th, and my wife worked much harder uh, creating a human than I did creating a book, but it's, it's been a busy year to be sure. <laughs> well, congratulations on both counts. Impact Alpha readers uh, know of you both because you're so uh, present in the field, but also because you've had a bunch of stories on Impact Alpha, which we thank you for, including a recent one after the Charlottesville violence. You, lo- you know and love Charlottesville, as I understand. Yes, David. I went to school at the University of Virginia. Um, I've lived in Charlottesville uh, longer than any other city in my adult life, and I, I absolutely love it. And, and so, what were what you know? Obviously, you 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 were shaken up by those events, and in the piece you wrote about how uh, you know, I think it was a, almost a soul searching moment. You know, is is impact investing even relevant in the in the aftermath? Where, how did you come down? Yeah, so I used to live on the lawn at the University of Virginia, and when you see literal Nazis walking down a place that is so special um, and and such a safe haven, waving torches, you say, "Oh my goodness, why are we, why are we even doing this?" But you know, I I thought to my time at the University of Virginia, um, where I took a course in civil rights history from um, the late, great Julian Bond, who was a civil rights leader and was a, was a professor and mentor of mine at the University of Virginia. And I uh, spent a lot of time talking to Mr. Bond about what, as like a white guy, I could do around um, racial justice in the 21st century. I grew up in the South and you grew up around a lot of racism and a lot of unpleasantness in the South. And, and he always said, you know, everybody where you are, you can do something with what you have, with where you are. And, and that's, that's, you know, the, the civil rights movement is people marching and people protesting and people sitting in, but it's also people doing little things every day to, to make the world a little more just and fair. And so I thought about, um, impact investing. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that money dominates the world and finance runs the world. And if, we don't have a large, uh, if we don't have a movement of people using financing, using our economy to be more just, to be more fair, to be more transparent, um, things like Charlottesville will only happen more and more. So 
you know, designing new investment funds or changing investment processes to be less biased uh, is not something that's going to make the front pages of, of the newspaper, but it is something that we absolutely have got to do if we're going to uh, prevent future things like Charlottesville from, from happening and getting worse. Well, you, you have a reputation, I think, as a kind of sunny, optimistic guy. And I, I did note that at the beginning of the book, you sort of lay out two assumptions about your readers, one that they're um, spending every day or, or getting up and trying to make the world a better place, and the other that they believe in kind of the free market and capitalism as a way to maybe aggregate resources to make that happen. The first one in particular puts you either in, you know, um, let's say might limit your readership if, um, or else, you know, something about human nature that, uh, that, that somehow, um, escaping, escaping others. But where does that, uh, where does that positive attitude come from? Well, uh, I, I've just always believed that most people are trying to do the right thing. Um, most of the time, um, I also grew up really involved in my church. And if you if you look at human history and morality, um, everybody has blind spots. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody uh, misses a lot. And I think that the main thesis of the book is as we think about investing in people and places and industries, we're really missing out on a lot. We're cutting out a lot of people. We're leaving behind a lot of places. We're completely ignoring the highest impact industries. And that's not because the people who are in positions of power are bad people. It's not that people don't care. It's very often that people just don't know or they just don't see or they just haven't experienced um, how venture capital, for example, completely marginalizes most people in the country, even though it's very, very good for a few a few companies. And so um, I don't know, maybe it's growing up um, in a church that has an optimistic view of humanity and a pessimistic view of, of uh, people's ability to always do the always intentionally do the right thing. But I, I, I think most people are trying to do the right thing. And there are also we just we just miss so much because we get so wrapped up in ourselves. Well, and also back to this concept of place and, and um, you have tried to sort of work the work the other areas, the, ri the rise of the rest, as it were, you know, um, uh, and, you know, I think even, you know, to the point of, you know, bus tours to, to explore places where that don't get much venture capital. Um, does that, you know, how does that inform your, your, your view of all this? In the book, I talk about an entrepreneur that we've supported called uh, Jerry Namoran, who runs a company called Lynn Street. And Lynn Street is a company that helps people refinance their debts, your medical debt, your student debt, it consolidates it, refinances it uh, at a fair interest rate loan. Um, Jerry is African-American. He grew up the uh, kid of immigrants from Haiti, and he saw his mom get ripped off by payday lenders growing up, and he wanted to go to college and get involved in finance and, and figure out how to help people like his mom get better and fairer financial services. To him, this was the most obvious thing. Now he went out and he started raising money. He was at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, and I met Jerry and he, I said, Jerry, this is a great idea. You're, seems like you're struggling raising money. What's going on? And he said, you know, venture capitalists are all about pattern recognition. Um, and I'm a black guy. I'm in central Virginia. I'm solving poor people's problems. I'm 0 for 3. I, there are these implicit and persistent biases in how we make decisions that leave out thousands of Jerry's. Uh, the good news is 
there are lots of people out there who are intentionally trying to find different people, places, industries. Jerry got his first investment from a partner of ours, uh, Kapoor Capital, run by uh, Mitch Kapoor and Frida Kapoor Klein, and they intentionally invest in women and people of color. And Jerry got half a million dollars from Kapoor Capital. He's now raised tens of millions of dollars and has helped thousands of families refinance their personal debt and helping people get out of um, deep, deep debt into a much more sustainable life. And that uh, first investment likely wouldn't have happened unless the K-Pors were intentionally trying to change who had opportunity. So it takes a lot of work to overcome blind spots. Uh, Steve Case, who wrote the foreword of the book and has been a great partner of ours, has really lifted up a lot of communities in the middle of the country uh, with his Rise of the Rest initiative. Steve Case has spent an incredible amount of his own time and money doing this. A lot of people are content to sit under fluorescent lights in New York or San Francisco and kind of decide where money goes. And and Steve put his own skin in the game to go to all of these cities and he's and he's still going. So I think that yeah, you know, there are thousands of Jerry's who are completely cut out of our investment economy. And the way that most people invest, they're not gonna break in. And it really takes leaders in finance and leaders in business to get out of the building and get out of the, the way of doing things to, to bring new people into the, the conversation. One of the things that struck me is a, a point you, you made that I hadn't thought of, which is that the valuations of the companies in these places that are not as well supplied or have as good access to capital is actually can be lower. So if you get a similar, all other things being equal, an investment in those companies is going to be better for that investor as well as presumably for that entrepreneur, but um, but that you can find mispriced assets in these out-of-the-way places. Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, venture capital as an asset class does not outperform the S&P 500. And I researched venture capital returns with, historically, and, it's, and it's, it's not a great performing asset. But when I dug in deeper... There were two types of investments that really did look better. Um, one is smaller funds definitely outperform larger funds. And smaller funds are usually run by first-time fund managers. They usually are doing something different and interesting. And someone would argue, I would argue that smaller funds are hungrier and more contrarian, and they 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 definitely outperform. So the the uh, and the second interesting finding is most people in venture capital say, well, we need to invest in New York and San Francisco because that's where all the talent is and that's where all the money is. Um, and if you look at it, venture capital investments in the middle of the country have performed as well, fully realized, exited as venture capital on the coasts. Um, however, it took companies half as much money in the middle of the country to get there. So I think that People who are investing where everyone else is investing, New York, San Francisco, Boston, where 80% of startup investment goes, are maybe overpaying for deals that are just as good as, as companies in places where we invest, like Des Moines, Iowa, and Kansas City, Missouri, where you can get 50 cents on the dollar on your valuation, and, and, and there's not a financial trade-off, the, the data suggests. Well, that's interesting. This It, does, it is a sort of matter of where you sit. So... I'm out here in the Bay Area. Everybody's got to have a startup. Startups are what everybody talks about. It turns out that entrepreneurship and, and business starts are actually down across the country and down fairly markedly over, you know, 
pretty long period, like it's an actual trend. We think of it sort of as a age of entrepreneurship, and it's really the the the, the a, a, a down cycle for entrepreneurship. Yeah, if you're paying attention to just the headlines, it seems like we're in a golden age of entrepreneurship. But actually, entrepreneurial activity in the U.S. is at a 40-year low. And I think it's because there's a divide between hubs like San Francisco and New York that are doing really well. Um, We looked at the numbers, and in the 20 wealthiest zip codes in America, entrepreneurial activity is up almost 300% in 20 years. If you go outside those top 20 in every single county in the country. More firms are dying every day than are starting. So actually, and and the real reason why that's a problem is job creation. Um, The jobs that we are losing for average middle-class people are not actually coming from automation. They're not actually coming from offshoring, despite what you read in the paper. They're coming from a increasingly consolidated and growing big companies and the death of startups. According to the Kauffman Foundation, almost all new jobs are created by firms that are less than five years old. So if you're worried about what jobs look like in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you need to figure out what new businesses are starting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because those are the businesses that are going to employ people. Well, it's interesting. I look at one of the charts in the book, and it shows the long-term trends of job, uh, sorry, of, of uh, firm creation and firm deaths, or birth rates and death rates. And the death rates are actually hold fairly steady, around nine or ten percent. The birth rates is what's come down, right? Fewer, fewer companies starting. And as I said, that does seem to fly against, you know, sort of what are the kind of you know glitzy, glitzy headlines. But I wonder whether is venture capital the solution that maybe it's, you know, good old bank loans um, for, you know, businesses that are not really venture capital type businesses. Yeah, we one of our blind spots in investing is we create these one size fits all tools that apply to a specific kind of idea and then we apply it to everything. So, for example, venture capital um, and in the book, I talk about the history of venture capital actually comes, the structure we use in venture capital actually comes from 19th century whaling. Oh, I love that. I love that example. I had, I didn't know that. And I love that. Uh, tell that, tell that story. Yeah. So uh, the way you want, if you want to make a ton of money and take on a ton of risk in the early 19th century, you would get into the whaling game. And a lot of these voyages would go out of places like New Bedford every year. Um, a few of them would come back with huge whales. A lot of them would get lost at sea or, or people would get sick and die. I mean, massively, massively risky. So we invented what we now call a limited partnership to finance these whaling expeditions. Um, only a few do really well. A lot of them fail or get lost and, and we'll see what happens. Over the course of the history of private equity and venture capital, when when people wanted to start investing in companies, uh, they copied and pasted this structure that was created for chasing whales. So today we're now chasing unicorns. We're not chasing whales, but the structure remains very similar. Um, You have venture capital as a structure where you want a couple of companies to do insanely well. Um, You expect most companies to fail. And if the company isn't one that can do insanely well, you're you're just not going to invest. Now, less than 1% of businesses in the country raise venture capital, and it's a structure where most companies are, are dead on arrival. Um, 
other types of financial structures like community banking that fund that other 99% of decline. Community banking has gone down 50%. Um, I'm really intrigued by the emerging zebra movement where there are a number of thinkers coming out of Portland that have, have defined what a zebra company is, which is normal linear growth and trying to figure out how to finance companies like that. And so I think that, and I talk about this in the book, part of the solution for turning around the entrepreneurial tide in America is not taking venture capital to more places. It's creating new investment structures that finance where most great businesses already are. You guys at Village Capital have tried to create uh, uh, some new kinds of structures. I know the one that people know about, of course, is this peer uh, selection among the cohorts of entrepreneurs that go through the program. And how does that actually improve uh, improve your selection? Right. Another blind spot in how we invest is the way we actually select our investments. So most everybody I know who funds new ideas has the same process. You know, we have a application process, we meet you, we look at your resume, we do some due diligence, and we make investments. That seems very straightforward, but that's actually loaded with bias. For example, a lot of investors say they really like a warm introduction, um, an introduction from someone they know. Now, if you don't have any friends or family who have money or know anybody with money, you're completely cut out. Now, we also see, think of the pitch fest, demo day, I'm pitching to investors. That's a very highly biased process. In the book, I cite research from Wharton that says that women, for example, when they're pitching the exact same business as men are 60% less likely to raise funding. So this whole Shark Tank tournament approach to funding cuts out a lot of people. Um, we at Village Capital wanted to make investing more transparent and more fair. And I, before starting Village Capital, worked for a firm called Grey Ghost Ventures, which is a pioneer in impact investment, specifically in the microfinance industry. And uh, I was really, really fascinated in the village banking methodology in, in emerging markets. And my boss and mentor, Bob Patillo, had invested an incredible amount of time and money in the microfinance industry. And these peer groups of women would make investment decisions around their neighbors. And the repayment rate was upwards of 99%. And so the basic idea behind Village Capital was, can we take this transparent peer review process in Village Banking, take it to venture capital, maybe you have more fair process, maybe you have better results. What we've seen over time um, is we actually have entrepreneurs making investment decisions. And we've invested in over 80 companies this way. Uh, the outcome is, a first of all, a much more diverse portfolio. So in venture capital, 78% of startup investment goes to New York, Massachusetts, California. About 5% goes to women. About 1% goes to people of color. We changed the process. It's transparent. It's peer-reviewed. It's entrepreneur-selected. 90% of investments are outside those three states. About 43% of our investments, as of September 2017 are in companies co-founded by women. About 24% are in companies co-founded by people of color. And what we have seen is a more transparent process favors the best idea, not just the person who can pitch the best. And we've had the Global Accelerator Learning Initiative uh, do independent evaluations of how our companies are doing. And they're outperforming about 43% in revenue growth. They're raising eight times as much money to a control group. And you have a more fair process. It gives you a more diverse portfolio. It gives you better results. And we're, we're, we're really 
proud of, of what we've been able to build by being a little more open and transparent. So just to be clear, you, uh, a group goes through the accelerator program of a, a dozen or so companies, and then they choose among themselves which of those companies are going to get some follow-on funding from Bill Cap and partners. So they're, in effect, voting against themselves? Yeah. So you're an entrepreneur in, let's say, education. And typical venture firm, you pitch them, and you sometimes don't hear anything, and sometimes hear no, and very rarely say yes. Um, if you are a company trying to get funding from Village Capitals Fund, you go through a learning group with 11 other founders in your same sector. Um, you all do diligence on each other and you make a ranking at the end of the program and we fund who the entrepreneurs recommend. So Ross, everybody thinks of venture capital as, you know, if, if they think of them at all as, you know, some, some, some rich white guy, perhaps, as you say, um, sitting up on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, doling out money to some, you know, tech, tech hotshots. Um, who are you? How did you get to become a venture capitalist? You know, I still don't think of myself as a venture capitalist. I, uh, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always been, uh, I've always been building stuff ever since I was a kid. Uh, it, Shelby Foote, his historian, said, "You don't write a book because." you've got the answer. You write a book because you want to find out the answer and you want to share the journey with other people. I didn't start a venture firm, Village Capital, because I thought I had the answer for venture capital. I wanted to figure out why entrepreneurship was not democratic and in the process build a firm that made it a lot more democratic and transparent. And so, you know, I have always been starting stuff. I got investment for my first real startup when I was in college from a guy, Bob Patillo, who founded Grey Ghost Ventures, who I happened to know through a friend of a friend. I also saw dozens of other great founders with great ideas not be able to get a shot. And I had a Bob who had money to invest in me and had time to invest in me as a mentor. And I saw lots of other people not have their own Bob. And it seemed like a very, very unfair system. And so um, trying to start a firm that solved for something that I thought was fundamentally unfair and also fundamentally bad business is, is kind of how I got here. People talk about entrepreneurship both as a solution to maybe it's maybe it's too too convenient. Um, uh, but people think, you know, oh, if we could just spur small business growth in towns across country by encouraging entrepreneurship, you know, co-working spaces and community funds and, and whatnot, that that would be a way to kind of revitalize, you know, towns and, and regions that have been hollowed out by deindustrialization and, and all the rest. Is that really a viable sort of broad economic policy? It's, it might be a good uh, investment strategy for a particular fund, but is, as a broad social policy, is that really going to get us where we need to go? You know, a lot of our economic policy focuses on the big um, stadiums, $300 million tax breaks for Apple to build X plant. Um, and I, I really think that the big has squashed the small and the medium. I think an economic policy that stimulates the small and the medium is, is going to be much more successful. So the Coffin Foundation estimates that new businesses create nearly 100% of new jobs. And right now we've got um, big companies have never been doing better. Dow Jones at an all-time high. More Americans work for big businesses than at any time in our lifetime. Um, but small, medium-sized firms have never been doing worse. And if you look at 
for example, the social fabric of communities. The local small or medium-sized business is much more likely to sponsor the Little League team or give money to the local hospital than Amazon is or Walmart is. If you look at uh, how communities develop their leaders, if you're CEO of uh, XYZ medium firm in the city, you're going to be a much more valuable member of the Chamber of Commerce than if decisions around XYZ companies' corporate giving in XYZ city are made hundreds of miles away. I really, really think we've, we've got a massive concentration problem. A few cities, a few industries, a few big companies are getting more and more powerful, and it's, it's hollowing out the rest of the country. You talk about a movement. I mean, you, th you think this, this has the ability to become a sort of verifiable mass movement of, you know, a pop, let's call it populist entrepreneurship, if you will? Yeah, I mean, if, absolutely. I think that right now, um, the average person, and if you look at Donald Trump's election, it would back it up. I think the average person looks at Wall Street, and they think Wall Street isn't doing very much for them. And they look at Silicon Valley, and they think that Silicon Valley isn't doing very much for them. Um, and I, I think that there is an emerging movement of the small and the medium versus versus the big. I think you know you're starting to see in policy land people talking a lot more about antitrust and a lot being very wary about big platform monopolies like Google and Facebook that may control too much and may squash a lot of small and medium sized businesses. I think in, in investing, um, the rise of the rest is part of it. Impact investing is part of it. People are thinking about investing differently in places and communities. I, I do think that the big battle line in the next decade in the business community is probably not going to be left versus right or liberal versus conservative. It's probably going to be big versus small and medium. So you've got a broad social policy with a lot of opportunities. You've got a growing movement with some wind in its sails. You've just got a book out where you stake some of these ideas out as, and, 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 and put some thought leadership on the table. Are you going to run for something? No, I mean, I think right now we don't really have, I think people know what's wrong with the economy. I think we don't really have ideas or tools for what's right. So I think there are really fundamentally broken things in our investment world. And I, I don't know what the next thing I or we at Village Capital will do in the investment world. I think it is very, very unlikely that we build a Silicon Valley style tech venture capital firm that invests in tech hotbeds. And I think a huge part of why I want to write a book was to share what I'm seeing, get ideas and build whatever the product or whatever the investment vehicle or whatever the, the organization is for the, the next generation. I think that's what in journalism we call a non-denial denial. If I, you're about to embark on a, on a book tour, you're going to go to all the red states, maybe the early primary states. Come on, Ross, Ross Baird for president. <laughs> David, I, do you remember having a uh, two-month-old? I think that I uh, value uh, being happily married more than uh, 
actually, let me let me give you a serious answer to that question. I think that uh, it's it's the on vogue thing to ask people who are interested in ideas if they're running for office. I think the role of money in politics keeps a lot of people out of running for office. I will tell you this. I have a two-month-old baby. Um, if you, you can look up Village Capital's Form 990 and see that you do not get rich to the point where you do not need to work if you run a nonprofit in the impact investing world, like what I, what I make is public record. If I wanted, let's say I did want to run for office. Um, if I wanted to run for office, I would need to quit my job. I would need to spend uh, two years raising money. I wouldn't be able to spend any of that money on like my mortgage and living expenses and all of that. And uh, it might not work out. And so I would say a huge, huge problem in our country is you need to either be in a profession like lobbying that will basically pay you to run for office or you need to have a ton of personal wealth or a ton of money saved up or, or whatever. So I, I would say that like politics is really interesting to me. Policy is really interesting to me. I think that the way our campaign finance world works, it basically at this point in my life makes running for office a non-starter practically for a lot of people like me. Well, let's leave it at that. Ross Baird, we thank you very much and wish you good luck both on your on both your projects, on all your projects, but uh, on Young Young Jack and on this new book. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks to David Bank for that conversation with Ross Baird of Village Capital. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment, a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and prosperous future. Special thanks to our editor, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.